Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Hey, Luke. This is Caleb. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, not much. I was just calling to remind you that uh, this week is my week to host 30 Pop, and I just didn't want you to forget and record your own episode. Yeah, man, I didn't. I'm actually really, really looking forward to it. So I, I just wanted to clear a few things with you. You have no problem with me just kind of doing whatever I want with the show? Yeah, no, I don't care at all. I mean, I care about the show, but I don't. I trust you, so okay. I, I'm sure it'll be awesome. So all sports and a little bit of Will Smith, DJ Jazzy Jeff Slander is going to fly with you. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I'll talk to you later. See ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your guest host, Caleb Sanderson. This is season three, episode 28, Unforgettable, Uncomparable, Undisputable, Unforgivable. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, July 27th, 1991. Hello, fellow 30 Pop listeners. If you're looking for Luke, he's off this week and has perhaps foolishly given me free reign to host this week's episode. Luke will be back next week, but for now, let's jump in. This week, let's start with the top of the Billboard charts, where Natalie Cole's 12th studio album, Unforgettable with Love, tops sales, dethroning the three-week reign of terror that was Van Halen's for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, a title I just learned was an acronym thanks to this show. The album includes covers of standards previously performed by her father, legendary jazz musician Nat King Cole. This was easily Cole's most successful album both commercially and critically, topping album sales for five weeks straight and earning Cole four Grammy nominations, including wins for Album of the Year, Best Traditional Pop Performance, and Record of the Year for the song Unforgettable, a remixed duet of the song her late father made, well, let's say, memorable. A somewhat interesting side note, but significant to the title of this episode, the song Unforgettable was written in 1951 by Irving Gordon, who originally titled the song Uncomparable. Perhaps because it's not technically a word, or they just like the ring of it, the publishing company Gordon wrote for asked him to change the name to Unforgettable, which in my opinion was definitely the right call. As previously mentioned, Natalie Cole's Unforgettable with Love would remain the number one album for another four weeks, so I'm sure we'll be hearing a bit more about it in the coming episodes. The top song this week is Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do It For You. The success of the song cannot be understated. 
It reached number one in 19 countries, including the U.S., the U.K., and Adam's native Canada. In the U.K., it spent 16 consecutive weeks at the number one spot, a record that still stands today. For comparison, the Beatles had a total of 17 number one songs in the U.K. Songs like Hey Jude, Yesterday, Eleanor Rigby, Something, and Let It Be. The most consecutive weeks they ever had at the number one spot was seven. Outrageous. There's a good chance I could quote this entire song from memory. Not so much because I think it's a great song, but because of the accompanying music video that played during the end credits of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves movie on VHS. As many times as I watched the movie, I watched the Brian Adams music video an equal amount of times. I went back and tried to find this version of the music video online, and it cannot be done. Friends, I went to the dark places of the internet. We're talking the third, fourth, and fifth O's of a Google search, and nothing. The things I saw. The places I go so you don't have to. Just a service provided by your pals at 30 Pop. It's difficult to discuss movies propping up music careers in the early 90s without talking about the Fresh Prince himself, Will Smith, who with his partner, DJ Jazzy Jeff, secured the top song on the hot rap charts with Summertime. Let's be honest, we can all appreciate how music paved the way for Will Smith to become one of Hollywood's biggest actors, but we should all be grateful that Smith chose acting over music. Have no doubt that your regular 30 pop host would have many problems with what I just said, but he's not here. While there are other notable songs and albums we could discuss, I would like to end by talking about R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People, a pop rock single that debuted on the Billboard Hot 100 chart this week that the band no longer seems to care about. I only bring up this song because it was the theme song for a sitcom called Friends Like Us. The show workshopped other names as well, like Six of One. Eventually, they settled on a different theme song altogether called I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts and simply called the show Friends. The song Shiny Happy People did eventually air on an episode of Friends, the one with the monkey. Let's transition to sports, which is fairly bland during this time of year. Late July through early September earns the moniker of the dog days of summer. The NBA Finals are over. Real football is yet to begin. Only one golf major to possibly care about. And in 91, there are no major international competitions by way of soccer or the Olympics. So all you have is regular season baseball to survive. Baseball can endure these low moments in a season because baseball is about tradition and history, even to a fault. Still, there is no other sport where you can look at a box score and craft an entire story of a game quite like baseball. To this day, I prefer to look at a box score than to watch a regular season game. It's a practice in deductive reasoning, creativity, and drama, and only lasts about two minutes as opposed to three hours. But I digress. On July 26, 1991, a box score between the Montreal Expos and the LA Dodgers reveals a Dodgers 1-0 win over the Expos in 10 innings. 
The two teams combined for five hits in what could be classified as a classic pitcher's duel. What's unique about this game is the Expos pitcher Mark Gardner threw a no-hitter through nine innings, only to give up two hits and the game-winning run in the tenth inning. Throwing a nine-inning no-hitter and losing is such a rare feat, and while Gardner's official stat line didn't go down as a no-hitter, it still ranks with some of the all-time great pitching lines to result in a loss. To put things in perspective, there have been over 218,400 Major League Baseball games played to date. Over that time, there have been 312 no-hitters. That's one no-hitter for every 700 games played. Unfortunately, Gardner is not included in that stat as he never pitched an actual no-hitter in his career. Interestingly enough, two days later, Gardner's teammate Dennis Martinez would not only pitch a no-hitter, he pitched only the 13th perfect game in league history. The difference in making history and being history is severely thin. Unfortunately, our sports heroes will make history outside of the arena in which they wow and entertain us, and it's usually not for good reasons. Iron Mike Tyson may have been rebounding from a slight downward trend from his time as the undisputed champion of the world, but make no mistake, he was still the most popular name in boxing in July of 91. 30 years ago, Mike Tyson was accused and arrested for the sexual assault of Miss Black American contestant Desiree Washington. I remember news reports of people being angry about his arrest and conviction and being confused why people were upset. I wasn't old enough to understand the nuances of the social and cultural ramifications surrounding the trial. Black men thought it was another example of one of their own success stories being targeted and brought down by the government. Black women were just begging to be heard by anyone. Fortunately, part of the show allows us a lens in which we can look at those moments 30 years ago with a bit of objectivity. I would like to start by saying I don't think Mike Tyson was innocent by any means of what he was charged with. I think it's fair to report that Tyson has maintained his innocence of that particular crime to this day. With that said, Mike Tyson was a celebrity who had grown accustomed to getting what he wanted, and likely to women wanting him as much as he wanted them. Thankfully, people like Desiree Washington, who are willing to speak up and speak out against their attackers, have empowered the Me Too movement to change the public consciousness of what consent actually is. I have no doubt if Tyson's story shifted 30 years later, Tyson's career as both boxer and general celebrity would be over. And perhaps it should be. But this look back has changed my view of Mike Tyson. In June of 2021, ABC released a four-hour documentary called Mike Tyson, The Knockout. I highly recommend this documentary if you appreciate American literature. I'm convinced Mike Tyson's story is a great American novel. The man escaped poverty, rejection, crime, assault, bullying, and God knows what else to emerge as the most famous name in sports, to lose it all because of a fatal flaw nurtured in his rough upbringing and those surrounding him as a young man. Whatever happened with Desiree Washington in July of 1991, Tyson took advantage of his power to take something that didn't belong to him. I find this an interesting study of American values of the time, and perhaps still today. The general public welcomed Tyson back with open arms, they were willing to forget the conviction so long as he was there to entertain, and Tyson gave the people what they wanted. In my memory, Tyson was always a villain for a myriad of reasons. The prison sentence, the quotes, the Simpsons parodies, the way he punished me as Lil Mac in his Nintendo game Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. It all blended together, and that was highlighted when he would go on to literally bite a portion of Evander Holyfield's ear off. For the public, this is when they turned on Tyson. He disgraced the sport. Never mind what happened with Desiree Washington. Shame the sport we love and we will rake you over the coals. After this, Tyson adopted the villain persona. He decided to be what everyone said he was. But he was never really that guy. He did horrible things. 
and horrible things were done to him. In the end, Tyson wanted to be loved and wanted to love people. He got help. He emerged from the darkness almost beloved despite his past. I would bet if you asked anyone under 30 who Mike Tyson is, most wouldn't bring up the sexual assault of Desiree Washington. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. We love redemption stories. But there has to be dynamic change in a character for us to accept them. Are we better off as a society allowing for more of those opportunities? Or are we better off pruning these figures from public consciousness forever? I honestly don't know the answer to this question. I like to think the former, but I've never been a victim of something so heinous to be in position to make that call. But at what point can someone do something so horrible that there's no coming back from it? July 22nd, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Jeffrey Dahmer certainly put this question to the test. Dahmer has become one of the most notorious names among serial killers, primarily because of his practice with the victims and their bodies after being killed. I don't want to get into the putrid details because no one should be subjected to knowing the specifics without consenting first. They're that bad. I was fairly young when this news broke, and while my parents shielded me from much of the horrors then, I now look back on the reporting of the time and I found myself interested in the pre- and post-serial killer versions of Jeffrey Dahmer. What piqued my interest in Dahmer was a graphic novel written and illustrated by Durf Backdurf titled My Friend Dahmer. Backdurf grew up with Jeffrey Dahmer and was able to put a human face on the monster known to the public. Easy to say, Dahmer's life was nowhere near ideal. His mother was sick, his parents were always fighting, and he discovered he was gay in a time and place where being gay was a ticket to being completely outcasted by everyone you know. Not that Dahmer needed any help in that category. He became an alcoholic at age 14 and was labeled a class clown seeking attention. Teachers noticed his drinking and odd, depressive behavior, but didn't intervene, likely because his grades were fine. By the age 18, his parents had divorced and moved out of the family home, leaving him alone. Finishing the graphic novel, I walked away feeling sympathy for Dahmer. His parents couldn't look past their own problems to see he was struggling. His teachers didn't care. His friends only saw him as a walking joke, good for the occasional laugh. Seemingly, everyone in his life saw that he had problems, but didn't care enough or were able to, in the case of his sick mother, to actually take the time to try to help him. Perhaps had some tried, Dahmer's story would be different. Perhaps not. The preface of my friend Dahmer comes from Backdurf's own thoughts, and I think he is able to summarize the situation perfectly. It's my belief that Dahmer didn't have to wind up a monster, that all those people didn't have to die horribly, if only the adults in his life hadn't been so inexplicably, unforgivably, incomprehensibly clueless and or indifferent. Once Dahmer kills, however, and I can't stress this enough, my sympathy for him ends. Durf Backdurf's novel is an eye-opening read about the need to be mindful of those around us. There are people who do a great job of covering the fact that they need help. Then there are others who are basically screaming for it. Look out for those people, but please protect yourself. And if you're someone who wants help but is scared to put yourself out there for fear of judgment, please take that step. Talk to someone you trust. Ask for guidance. Seek a professional. It can get better. After his arrest, Dahmer spent the rest of his life in prison until being murdered by a fellow inmate. Reports of his time in prison paint Dahmer as a peaceful inmate who questioned the validity of his own life. He began attending church services and was even baptized by a Church of Christ minister, Roy Ratcliffe. So we are left wondering if there is redemption for Dahmer. Dahmer himself asked this question. Could Dahmer find salvation in a forgiving heaven, or is he trapped in an unforgiving hell? The same hell where Bill and Ted find themselves on a bogus journey as Luke discussed last week, and which I'm going to use to introduce a new segment I like to call 
Mr. Sanderson's Degrees of Separation, or MS-DOS for short. Today, we slightly touched on Bill and Ted's bogus journey starring Keanu Reeves. Whoa! You're right! Keanu Reeves famously starred in the music video Rush Rush by Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul was a judge on American Idol, where our top album focus, Natalie Cole, found herself guest appearing on an episode in 2009. (laughs) Natalie Cole married Marvin Yancey of The Independents. Founding member of the Independence is Chuck Jackson, the half brother of Reverend Jesse Jackson. We pause and give praise and honor to God for being good enough to allow us to be at this place at this time. In 1988, Jesse Jackson baptized our sports focus, Mike Tyson, in Ohio, the same state where Jeffrey Dahmer grew up. Strangely enough, Tyson sang about Dahmer on an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live. We have, like, Wisconsin, we got a lot of crappy weather, so I got to worry about snowstorms. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Which goes to show absolutely nothing. Friends, it's been a fun ride. Next week, Luke will be back to restore the journalistic credibility you've come to love from 30 Pop. I thank you for listening, and remember, there's nowhere unless you're there. All the time, all the way. Yeah. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 